Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Code, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Adam Ducker, CEO of RCL Code. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, you know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding investment planning and development. Today, we're going to delve deeply into a new and I think innovative live-work product that our friend and colleague, Rob Selden, has been pioneering as Highland Square Holdings and now in partnership with Madison Marquette. Thanks for joining us, Rob. We're delighted to be together. We call this podcast The Best Minds in Real Estate. And one of the ways that I really like that formulation or how I like to conduct these conversations with people that I really feel are pioneering something new and different in land use. There's not radical change in our business, right? We build big fixed assets that are hard to evolve over time. Even through COVID, which has been somewhat revolutionary, it's still been very difficult to find real examples of how people are sort of changing the model. And among other things, Rob and I are gonna talk today about the live work loft concepts that he has pioneered. This was a project before COVID, but of course, post COVID has made it a little bit more interesting. So Rob, maybe let me, let you give just the elevator description of live work loss. We're going to talk about it in detail, but so people know what we're talking about and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adam. I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today and hopefully we can shed some light on some hopefully interesting new directions that we're trying to move the industry. Live work lofts, pretty simple. You know, we've mostly been focused on buying empty office buildings which have been a growth industry here in the DC area, specifically for the better part of the last decade. And then we've been focusing on that mostly for a conversion strategy into our live work platform. And what we've been doing is making what we would describe as cool loft style apartments, but giving each of the units three permitted occupancies. So they can either be rented as an apartment, as an office, or as a non-separated live workspace. So we wind up with 300% potential utility in a 100% physical plant. And then unlike traditional real estate where the owner dictates to the user how they use the property, it's an apartment, it's an office. In our strategy, the market determines for us the best way for the asset to be used. So wherever the demand is greatest, we have the ability to allow our platform to pivot to attract that demand and have the ability to oscillate instantly and for no cost from one type to the other. From a pragmatic standpoint, the platform is designed to work on a traditional apartment operating system, basically so 12 month leases and the tenants pay all the utilities. And the goal really is to therefore sort of grow alpha by having rapidly increased demand against a finite set of supply to drive safer revenue and hopefully same store growth above the mean. Yeah, it is really a fascinating concept. So before we get into it, let's turn back 
give folks a sense of how you got started in the business and kind of your your, your early career in the conventional multifamily business. I think it's helpful back. I think like most quote unquote real estate practitioners, I come from one relatively siloed set of experiences. So I got into the apartment business when I was still in graduate school. I was an architecture student and I actually started a development company while I was at Georgia Tech. I started as an apartment guy. And like most people, you sort of move and stay within one asset type for the totality of your career, just because you learn very specific skills in a very specific segment of the market. And so I did that for almost 30 years at this point. So I I learned a lot doing apartments and we did a lot of things sort of pioneering a lot of the components of how the apartment industry should work, both as a private developer and then also working for large multifamily REITs. And then we started, we really started looking into the live work business It was really in 2013, 2014, when I was here in the D.C. area and I was working with an older family office in the Washington region. And and we were just focused on a question as to why we were seeing so much increase in office vacancy. And I wasn't an office person, so I didn't really have much insight into it. But it seemed strange that in a place like Fairfax County, Virginia, where there is almost no unemployment and what the Washington region was always viewed as the safest office market in the country, why vacancy seemed to be skyrocketing, even with persistent job creation. So really, we just began, it was more out of interest into why things were happening that we really began exploring the essence and the nature of the office business and began seeing that there was real opportunity based upon what might just be a misallocation of demand. And, you know, you you use the word pioneer, did you describe yourself like in the early part of your career as, you know, kind of an innovator or focused on that or? Well, I would say not necessarily. As a developer, we're always trying to figure out how do you capture demand? You know, the apartment business is an industry that's built on revenue, security and safety. So we were always trying to figure out how could we take the business and find underserved growing pockets of demand that our competitors weren't finding or just at least weren't catering to. And that took a number of turns. You know, we at Archstone, where I was local head of development for a long time and then sort of the head of product development around the country, we were really early on looking at things like how do you use amenities to grow market share? So we were having soundproof music practice rooms. This was 15 years ago. We were doing pet spas 20 years ago before those were really de rigueur in the industry. And it was really just based upon what are the kinds of things that our customers want and how are the existing stock of sort of industry options not meeting those desires. One of the ways was obviously with different kinds of amenities. One was with unit mix. And then just a natural progression from there was maybe rethinking the box in its entirety and asking really what should a building be doing and how really can it evolve and adapt to changing markets in a universe where technology is so rapidly reorganizing human life. But you described it earlier as it wasn't so much the liberal loss concept trying to improve the apartment as, as a response to what you saw as a change in the office market. Is that right? That's right. And it was really just a way for us to figure out where is demand going 
and how can we get a piece of it? You know, one of the things that we noticed as we began looking into it, you know, in the Washington area, and a, a big portion for the reason why Washington became a, a huge growth industry for empty buildings was because in 2010, the federal government became the first large-scale employer to embrace the mobile workforce. In 2010, they passed the federal ostensibly work-at-home law, which said that all federal employees should have the ability to telework if they wanted to, not that they had to. But as a result of that, just large percentages of the workforce decided that's a thing I would like to do. And because of that, there was just a huge diminution in overall demand. But the real question was, how did they have the ability to do that, right? Because this was a decade ago. And in reality, it was because of mobile telecommunications and the revolution that really the iPhone had in liberating information from buildings. If you ask yourself, like, what is an office building? Fundamentally, we've decided it's two things. One, it's a machine for temporarily storing people, and it's a machine for permanently storing information for processing. And its value is predicated, therefore, on the worker's need to go to the building to access the information that they need to do their jobs. Well, since 2008, most people in this country have carried in their pockets the sum total of human knowledge for all of history. And at the mobile telecommunication revolution, which it really is, permanently liberated information from physical space. And if you're in a business that basically sells physical space to access information, that means you're permanently impaired. So from our perspective, it was like, wow, that seems like a big insight. It seems like we're probably going to be able to eventually buy office buildings a lot cheaper. And therefore, they might be really good base collateral for a different way of thinking about how to create housing and, and its sort of ancillary components. Right. Now, when we started talking about this, or I started hearing from you about this, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, it kind of fell on deaf ears in some respect. Is that maybe an overstatement? But fair to say, or at least it was not a common point of view. <laughs> well, I think, right. I think that a lot of it, there's a lot of components and constituent groups who have interests in stasis. Obviously, anybody who's invested in one thing working is going to defend the idea that that one thing should work. And if you come to and tell them, hey, it may not, there's probably not going to be a lot of interest in hearing it. From my perspective, it was really, we noticed in the office business, it was really easy or the demand, I should say, for small office space was skyrocketing. This was like the sort of the heyday of WeWork and all of the sort of businesses that we would describe as businesses of disaggregation that took advantage of the mobile telecommunication revolution. And they were in conflict with the sort of industry of stasis, which were big office leases, which was sort of most of the market historically. And what we noticed was that you couldn't give away big floors, but you could charge a lot for small space. So we said, gee, you know, as we were looking at the marketplace in general, we began really investigating how the office business worked. And a couple of things that jumped out at me, one was 75% of all U.S. businesses had 10 or fewer people. If you think about the real fundamental difference between an office building and an apartment building are the number of humans it's allowed to physically hold. So apartment buildings are designed for one per 200, office one per 100 square feet. So if you have a business of 10 or fewer people, it could physically or legally fit into a space that's a thousand square feet. And we said, gee, that's interesting. Typical size of an apartment is a thousand square feet. And you're telling me that a, 
A typical apartment in this country could house three-fourths of all U.S. companies if the building was legally allowed to sort of have that occupancy. That seemed really interesting to me because that was about a seven and a half million entity universe. If you think that the apartment industry is a 44 million unit universe, it was almost 20% the size of the apartment industry. Wow. The second piece was people working from home, you know, which 10 years ago was a relatively small but meaningful slice of the workforce. You know, in 2015, there were about 8 million people working from home on a regular basis or working remotely. And in a 160 million person workforce, that's about 5% of the U.S. workforce. But when you combine that with a 7.5 million entity universe of businesses of 10 or fewer people, that's about 15 million things or people or entities, which at the time is roughly a third of the size of the entire U.S. apartment industry. And so I was like, gee, that those seem like good value accretors. If we could figure out a way to add that demand to our just standard apartment demand, we will have dramatically increased our demand metric relative to the total universe of supply, which should help make income safer and revenue grow faster. Obviously, today, following the pandemic, that's changed a lot to the point that now, I guess at last look, 90 million people were working remotely at least sometime during the week, which if you think about it, from 2015, 8 million to 2022, 90 million, that is the largest and fastest migration in human history. And there's not really a very good place in the commercial real estate universe to take in and adapt and absorb that changing demand. So obviously, we need to be able to do that. And luckily, we've been thinking about this for a while. So we're sort of on the path of getting there. So you're working on this idea, and it's exciting. Again, we're, you know, back in 2016, 17, 18. It's not just, you know, adding more amenities to the apartment building, right? It's a fundamental change. And so maybe walk us through some of the challenges, the first of which is, you know, older office buildings are not cheap yet. <laughs> maybe they're still not cheap. But at that time, Right. They were really not priced as for priced for conversion is maybe the way to say it. That's true. Although we were fortunate here in Northern Virginia, the market really began slowing a, a decade sooner. Now, I will say that we were fortunate being here because one of the interesting sort of side effects of being a market that's incredibly reliant upon the federal government is that a lot of office owners were trained to keep their buildings empty in hopes that there would be an opportunity to land a federal tenant, because a lot of times the government won't go in if there's somebody else in the building. So unlike a lot of markets where, you know, owners are trained to do whatever they can to try to keep their buildings occupied, you had the opposite situation here. And so then when the largest really pool of demand, which was the federal government began changing its demand metric and didn't really look for space. There was a lot of people who were left with difficulty. And so those buildings, we were able to buy at what were considered really dramatic discounts to what they had historically been valued at. So we were sort of a canary in the coal mine here. And now just the changing nature of office demand, which is really driven by the freedom of information to be any place, a lot of those changes are now sort of coming to the rest of America. Right. So challenge number two, 
it was illegal what you wanted to do, or at least it didn't work <laughs> with zoning as we understood it. You want to talk a little bit about, you know, how do you make a building that's both an office building and an apartment building? Yeah, so there are two components that are sort of code related. One obviously is is the zoning code, and then the other is the building code. You know, which which codes do you meet? Because obviously they were never really designed to be combined, right? Office buildings have their own building codes. Residential buildings have their own building codes. And if you think about what codes do, they really take what had been common usage and make it mandatory, right? So they're really codifying what the past had been, which in some respects precludes the future. It's an interesting challenge. And so it took a lot of work with really smart building officials, forward-thinking building officials and zoning officials to say, hey, you know, there really are some inherent inefficiencies in the way that our systems have been designed. They are decidedly anti-environment because they force people to go to places to do the same thing. They're causing all kinds of traffic problems, which we're sort of known for here in the Washington region. And if we could just be a little bit more proactive and think strategically about which, how do we actually allow these things to oscillate? You can make buildings a lot more effective and efficient for the consumer, which actually reverberates meaningfully back to the jurisdiction. In Alexandria, where we did our first one, we had a great meeting with a former planning director and we described what we wanted to do to her. And the zoning code actually was written to permit 100% commercial or 100% residential. And we said, hey, did you ever think that it could be 100% of both at the same time? And since live work as a building designation is a separate category under the building code, it could be three things. She said, you know, Rob, that sounds really interesting. You know, I, I like you, but I have no idea what you're talking about. So then we showed her this cool video. And after 15 minutes, she said, you know what? That seems like a really, really great idea. Yes, it's legal. And that really was what paved the way for it to be allowed to occur. And then there was a very forward thinking chief building official who we sat and worked closely with on, you know, we'll use this code under this circumstance, this code under this circumstance. So that way we're always meeting the highest code requirement. And that's really what enabled that to work. And then ultimately, once we got the first one built, a lot of the other jurisdictions began to come and say, oh, my God, why don't we have one of these? And so that helped to create the beginning of hopefully what was a virtuous cycle. But if we picked up and went to do this in Columbus or Charlotte tomorrow, it would be starting from scratch. Or do you think that there's more openness on the regulatory front to these kinds of, I don't know what you call it, a new model, effectively? What we found is that everybody knows that something's not working, right? And everywhere knows that you should be able to have a better way. I would say it really wasn't until COVID that that sort of reality was forced onto people because one of the interesting side effects of COVID and especially the stay-at-home work order was that it fomented the largest code violation in US history which is really what working from home is. You know, your home's not zoned for work. Apartment buildings don't have floors that are strong enough for work. They don't have handicapped toilets. They don't have enough parking. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that just create, let's just say, unforeseen challenges. But what it did show is that when given the option, a lot of people thought that that was a good idea. And at the end of the day, what what buildings should be doing is, is helping their customers achieve whatever it is they're 
goals and aspirations are. The building needs to be an agent of elevation of individuals. And if there are rational accommodations people would like to make in their lives, buildings need to support that. And I think what we've seen now as we've began having discussions with other jurisdictions is they recognize this too and are looking for interesting and creative options. And the fact that we were able to do them here has been a big help to say, you know, this is how we accomplish these objectives in the DC area. Let's look at your codes to see how we could maybe write that work as well. Right. So going back to the first project, you've identified a building and you've gotten kind of, you know, regulatory approval and you had a compelling partner, but how hard was it to finance from a debt perspective? Actually, it was really pretty simple. You're right that it obviously if we were to go to people and say, hey, we've got this new idea that's untested. Do you want to give us money for it? You know, that wouldn't typically be a very compelling argument. But so what we always told people was, look, we'd like to make the best apartment building that there would be in this market. And we're able to purchase this really, really high quality base collateral at significant discounts to replacement cost so that when we do a conversion to a really great loft apartment building, we're going to be in at a cost that is at or below what a new wood frame competitor would be. Uh, Only we'll have a sort of concrete and glass high-rise building that's like new with twice as much parking. So we're getting a better physical plant faster and basically for less money than if you were going to go and build one yourself today. And typically the markets that we were looking at were places where the economics would never work from a ground up high rise perspective. So we were going to have a product type that was literally irreplaceable for a basis that was also irreplaceable. So we said, forget everything we've told you about working from home and office buildings and all this other kind of stuff. Just assume it's the nicest apartment that you've been able to finance and at a discount to competitive basis. And that was a much more compelling fact pattern for lenders and equity people as well. So we found that it was actually really pretty easy, or at least easier at the time to get debt. And at the time, actually, one of the most fascinating things, which was interesting to sort of work through, was the big challenge for the lender was they were having a hard time believing that we could buy office buildings for the prices that we were buying them for. You know, Northern Virginia, typically during this period, most things were between $275 and $500 a foot in perceived value. We bought our first building for 80 bucks a foot, plus or minus. And so for the lender, it was, oh my God, you know, We don't have anything like that on our books. What does this do to everything else that we're doing? So from that perspective, it actually made it easier for them to give us higher proceeds. Interesting. Because they couldn't assume the value was that low. Yeah. And so you build this first building and how did you kind of develop the operating platform to allow you to bring it to market as, you know, a flex product or a user-driven use paradigm? That's actually the most interesting challenge because in as much as the zoning and the building code regulatory frameworks are are heavily siloed, so is the management structure in real estate. So apartment companies are managed or apartment buildings are managed by traditional apartment managers. Office buildings are managed by office managers. They have their own metrics. They have their own lease terms. They have their own, all of the sort of organizational structures. 
our goal is to have a product that is understood as a multifamily asset with additional demand. So we said, let's run it like an apartment building, 12 month leases, tenants pay all the utilities, and we'll have basically the same lease depending upon however you'd like to rent it. The only difference being that if you're renting it as a commercial tenant, you first need to go and register with the municipality as a business, so that way you can be paying the BPOL tax. But fundamentally, from an organizational standpoint, the leases look the same and the building is run like an apartment building. So you sign a 12-month lease, you bring whatever furniture you need. If you like it at the end of the 12-month term, great, you can renew. If you don't, you can move out and somebody can easily come back in and replace you. Right. We should have mentioned the name of the first project earlier on, but the project that the launch project in Sherlington was, remind me the name? Elofts Alexandria. Elofts Alexandria. And so Elof Alexandria comes to the market in 2018, 19? 2016. Oh, 16 then, okay. And what was the mix between kind of conventional apartment users and office users? At the time, we had a, a local equity partner who we had worked with in the past, and, and he was you know, concerned. He's like, I've never seen anything like this, and I want to make sure that I can get Fannie and Freddie takeout. So make sure that whatever you do, don't rent more than 20% of them as offices and without my permission. So that was sort of our internal threshold. And at least in the first 100 or so leases, that was actually sort of trending along those lines that it was sort of four multifamily type leases for every office lease that we wound up executing. And what would be the profile of an office user? Like what kind of organization or was it an individual or? No, no, they meant mostly just sort of small businesses. We had architects, law firm, some accounting people. We had back office of a family that owned a bunch of local restaurants. That was where they did their accounting group. We had a guy who was living there. He ran a wellness company and they made wellness videos. He had, he actually rented three units, one for his wellness video studio, one for his back office. And he lived in one. We had a company that was, they sold technology for sort of healthcare related software. They had offices in three markets around the country. And so the head of that business, when they were here would live in the building and then, you know, use it as the office when they were there. And then they still had people come in and work there for the time that, that they were not present. So it was just, it was a much more sort of interesting fluid mix of tenant profiles than you'd really ever be able to just get in a traditional apartment building. And it really opened up opportunities for, like I said, for the building to serve its real purpose, which was to provide its customers with the maximum type of service that they needed, right? And so however it is that they really felt they wanted to use it and however it could create value for them, the building was able to do that. And so to us, that was sort of a meaningful change. Right. And so just so people can visualize it, right, they're loft style spaces and you can rent, you know, a small space or a medium sized space or a bigger space and you can furnish it to look like a place you live or a place you work or both. Mm -hmm. That's right. And how the unit is used is entirely driven by the person who signs the lease. That's right, by the demand. What we talked about in terms of sort of aha moments, the office business has historically been an owner-driven business, 
right? That the owner decides, the owner of the building, I should say, the owner of the building decides when the lights go on, when the lights go off, when the heat comes on, when you need a fob to get into the elevator. You know, all of the things that are organized around you, the consumer, going to it to get the information you need to do your work, they control your access to your information. And in a lot of respects, they therefore control when you can access it, right? So you, as a consumer, are conforming your life to somebody else's desires based upon when you should do your work. What we wound up with in Elofts was it was the first office building that I knew of that conformed itself to the consumer, right? And so it was there for you when you needed it. If you think about it as an apartment building, it's strange to be at an office building at nine o'clock at night if you're the only person there. It's very uncomfortable, right? So it's uncomfortable to come on the weekends. Nobody's there. Here, it's an apartment building. People are always there. So it's never scary to be there at night. And so just having that type of flow really began to expand for the customer base, sort of the hours of operation and the ways that they would feel comfortable activating and taking advantage of it. Right. So the fir- that building, the first building was sort of was proof of concept, both from a, you know, you figured out how to build it, you figured out how to operate it. Did it perform economically as you had expected? Oh, yeah. No, it, it performed exactly like we thought it would. And so then fast forward today, you've kind of built a platform around the product. You want to speak for a little bit about what the ramp up has been like? And It's like in anything, we're a small company. Things are always slow because it's a transaction-oriented business. Things take a long time. But in the time since, we have we expanded into Fairfax County. We bought a second building, which is now complete and stabilized. It's called Mission Lofts. We have bought with the same capital provider for Mission Lofts, three more buildings in that area that are now under construction with 675 more of similar live-work themed apartments. That's actually the largest live-work redevelopment in U.S. history so far. And then we formed a strategic venture earlier this year with a larger local developer, sort of actually a national developer, but with a large local presence here called Madison Marquette. And we formed a GP entity called Madison Highland Live Work Lofts, with whom we've purchased two more buildings, also in the Skyline area, have two more under construction in a neighborhood called Merrifield, which is sort of right at the Beltway and Route 50, have entered into a third sort of development project in Tyson's. So things have been going pretty well, ramping up quickly. And now I think with hopefully with COVID in the rearview mirror and people having an ability to sort of reassess and look at the landscape of real estate opportunity going forward, I think there's just a lot more recognition that having a platform that can adapt to change is probably a smart place to be from an investor standpoint. So I think that's been helpful to us as well. And how has you know, the model changed as you have gotten more buildings under your belt or, or learned from more kind of market experience? Well, that's, I mean, that's a good question because obviously, you know, real estate is very sub-market specific. And since we are focused initially upon making it into a great apartment building, you know, we're always looking to see what types of units, what kind of spaces are 
both in short supply and high demand in a specific submarket. So in certain locations, you might have just more smaller units. In certain locations, you might have you know much larger ones. I think as we're sort of moving into the mix in Merrifield will be slightly more skewed towards sort of two and three bedroom configurations, you know, where you might have more people choosing to sort of work in the space than just live there. I think obviously now that working from home has become such a large component of really everything that people are are doing, really solving for a lot of the challenges related to home specific work, we've begun really taking a much deeper dive into that, both from a technology standpoint, as well as just a how else could the units be accommodated? How do we handle entry? You know, do we have physical separation in the space? All the things that as people began experimenting and seeing what they liked and what they didn't, you know, we've been able to sort of pretty quickly cycle through second and third generation ideas. And we talked a little bit earlier about COVID as an accelerant or at least like a dislocating event where the change numbers around you know, working remotely, but there have been other just changes in the relationship between where people live and where people work. How has your thinking about this product and its future changed since 2020 or so? Honestly, I would say that it really hasn't changed that much. Now that we know that buildings can do more and can provide services that really people hadn't thought that they either could or should. Our question is, now that you know that that's possible, why would you ever make a building that couldn't do that? How do you benefit? Most regulation is designed or it's intended to limit function, right? That's the basis of regulation. It's to limit human freedom in some respects, and which by therefore limits human potential. And once again, I don't think that's a particularly compelling argument for real estate. I think real estate should be about elevating human potential and expanding human potential and opportunity. And so our belief is that more things should be like what we do than not. I think eventually that will probably be the case. Yeah. Now, your business and your partnership with Madison Marquette is about owning buildings converting them and operating them. Had any thought about turning the, the concept into a platform, kind of like platform for deployment for other owners, or is it really a real estate business for you? Well, that's a great question. So number one, because we are a real estate, we're real estate developers. The development business is a capital intensive business. You know, you're typically solving for what the needs of the capital are. Now that we've been able to sort of demonstrate that hey, this is an idea that seems like it makes some sense. We think that we have a fairly good handle on what it costs and and how it should work. Now the question is, what's the best way to deploy it on a much larger scale? So I think one is we are definitely seeking sort of much, much larger scale capital that we can use to grow not only the platform, but sort of grow the length and duration of our ownership because we'd like to build this into a business that owns and operates these things not just as doing them sort of on a speculative build to flip basis part of the benefit of that if we can achieve that which hopefully we can is that the longer that we can own them the more that we can demonstrate that we are generating truly safer income and same store growth above the mean the more that we can demonstrate that 
then we think that there's an opportunity and a real one to license this to other people so that they can do it themselves and, and really grow the, the mindset of this way of using real estate much more quickly. Maybe three quick questions that are related topics. You're not in the co-working business, but I'm sure you follow it a lot. How do you process where that business is in its evolution? What's the next leg of the race for, for co-working as it's kind of typically defined? The way that I have always understood co-working is, once again, we think of co-working as a result of the disaggregating premise of mobile telecommunications, right? So because mobile telecom basically has the ability to blow things apart, people could be wherever they want to be. There's a lot more small than big and small has become big. The question for co-working is really what's it worth, right? You know, at the end of the day, because like anything, you're filling up a building specifically to create an income stream that has a value. And I think where a lot of the initial challenge for the co-working business was specifically with WeWork was it was just overvalued on an exit basis. Our belief is that for us, if it's our goal is to say, we want to have as much income as possible and have it all understood as apartment income, right? Because at the end of the day today, apartment income is worth the most. And so if a co-working dollar is worth seven or $8, an apartment dollar is worth 20 to 25. So if you're an owner, you would think the goal would be to have every dollar you earn be understood as multifamily. So I think that that's really where we've been focused on trying to make sense out of strategic growth. And I think I would hope that's probably something that's going to be animating the discussions for the co-working operators too. Co-working and to some degree co-living, and again, not to make an equivalency, but I observed that there's been this really strong, like ideological, like it implies a, like a way of life, you know, the platforms that have evolved. And I have a sense of you've been much more circumspect about sort of imbuing the product with some sort of revolutionary quality or implications. Is that kind of a purposeful strategy? Or you want to talk a little bit about how you've sort of thought about the brand, the language, like how you talk about it in the marketplace? Well, I think, so I get a couple of things that are interesting. So one, and this might sound a, a tad pejorative and it's not meant to be, but with millennials specifically, everything seems like it's been invented for the first time, right? Like co-working is really people working in the same place. Co-living is basically roommates. That had been the basis of the apartment industry for forever. I used to joke that one day, like millennials would go in and they would walk into a restaurant and they're like, oh my goodness, we've discovered co-eating, right? <laughs> to us, it's just as simple. We sell time in a box, right? We want the time that we sell to be worth the most money. And we want to be able to sell it to as many people as possible. And we think that if we can sell it to more people, it generates safer returns. And having safer returns means that, that the money that you earn is worth more money. So to us, it's just virtuous. The virtue is having a building that supports a larger universe of consumers. If you come to it from that perspective, which we would say come to it with humility, right? We're not, we don't want you, we're not trying to change the world. We're just trying to allow the building to help you do it, right? And if we can achieve that, then we think we'll have achieved something really meaningful and lasting and, and hopefully also really valuable. 
So we talked a little bit earlier about the Class B office building that maybe Washington was further ahead in the evolution, but you know, where do you process the, where that asset or sub-asset class is in its you know, kind of evolution? Is the, is the tide of, of obsolescence now sort of like tidal in magnitude and it's just a question of time or, or will be, buildings continue to be reused and, and people will think about them as viable office? You know, you have a take on what the outlook is? Well, I'm always hesitant to have to guess. And I, and I think, once again, what, what we would say is one of the things that we like about the way we've come to real estate is real estate regulation, by its nature, limiting the number of humans who can use the space, forces the developer and the owner to have to predict the future. You have to bet that this is what's going to happen, and you and you hope that with that limited pool of people, you have growth, right? I never wanted to have to be smart enough to predict the future because I'm not smart enough to do that. All I wanted was to have assets that were smart enough not to be harmed by whatever the future was. And so I think for office building owners, the question is really... How do they rethink their operating strategy to be able to attract more people and to be able to provide it as a service that maybe right now people aren't appreciating? And so I I don't think that there's anything fundamentally wrong with the physical plants. It's really just they have to rejigger the software so that the buildings are serving customers in the way that the customers want to be served. And I don't think it's impossible to figure out. They just have to ultimately do that. Well, last question, we we talked a little bit about what the future of your company looks like. Maybe last thought, what's new and exciting and percolating, you know, somewhere in the back of your mind that that might translate into real estate opportunity or or a different direction in which you take this product or something else? We're always looking to figure out where is the next big pool of demand. That's what we do. We align, we align space with demand. And so I think that the, the work from home, obviously, is, is the largest and honestly the most exciting change in the universe that I've seen in the 30 years that I've been in the real estate business. I think it's going to take a long time for that to kind of shake through and, and for people to really figure out how does that work. I see that really as a path of continued growth and vibrancy, not just here, but really everywhere, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. So I think we're going to be, we're going to be going heavy into that for at least for the next phase of this, of our expansion. But at the end of the day, right, people always need a place to live. They always need a place to work. Right. And then the only question is why should they have to like leave home to do that? You know, and if you're in an information business or in a knowledge business, increasingly we've learned that you don't really have to. So, you know, how can you turn that into good news and make it in a way that improves everybody's opportunity? Rob, this is terrific. I always enjoy our conversations and it really is a terrific case study. You know, change is hard and it takes time, right? People always think that, you know, I have an interesting next project I'll reinvent. And it's, of course, much more difficult than that. So, we're delighted to highlight your efforts and success and hear a little bit about what it might look like in the years to come. Thanks for joining today. No, no, thanks for having us. Anytime. Happy to come back. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. 
hosted by RCL Co. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCL Co. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.